uh, we are going to bring in now um, a dear friend of the program, uh, a guy who uh, is uh, sort of a mystery to me, a, a vexing mystery, a man who would drive five hours one way to, <laughs> to hang with Joe Morello and even even was considering uh, paying. He said, Joe, he said, he said, Joe, I'll pay you for two hours, three hours. Come on, you know. <laughs> And Joe said, "What are you talking about, dude? You're you, you, one hour's enough. It keeps you on edge, and you can go back on back to Port Jefferson or wherever he was at that time." Welcome, Dom Fumalaro. Welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, it's wonderful hearing your voice, and uh, and that is true. You know, there was a different time years ago. Guys like Morello, we speak about old school and new school. Well, guys like Morello and Chapin and Shelley Man, they were old old school. <laughs> can you break can you unpack that you know i can you unpack that because i forget exactly what he said to you he said so how are your chops and you said they're great and he's like how do you feel on the bandstand and he said you're, you feel great uh, you know and, he, and then he, he asked you like three questions and you said you, he said then you, you don't need any more but is that the, it, it, yeah go go ahead talk a little bit more it, about it, the it old, really old was that yeah. it, old old school means these guys made you earn Every page, before you turned a page in the book Stick Control, you had to earn that page that you played so he understood it. So I had said to him after about two years of working with Joe on a practice pad, I said, Joe, when do you think we're going to get to the drum set? And he kind of sat back and looked at me a little bit disappointed and crossed his arms and said, when do we get to the drum set? He said, let me ask you a couple of questions, a few questions. He said, how do your hands feel? I said, gosh, Joe, my hands feel great. I'm flying around the drums. He said, how's your... How's your creativity on the drum set? I said, guys, Joe, I'm playing things I have never played before because my hands feel so good. He said, well, how does the band like your playing? He said, well, they love my playing because I'm sounding so much more relaxed. He said, good. Then we've already been on the drum set. Get back to the practice pad. <laughs> and that really was it. That was really the focus of what we did. We focused on it. And, and it was about technique and understanding movement and understanding what movement is about. Which is, which, is, which is what Joe was about. Learning movement will understand your sound. Relaxed movement creates relaxed sound. Consistent movement creates consistent sound. And relaxed movement will open you up to play even better and more creative, and you're going to have more fun, and there it is. <laughs> Dom, it's, I'm just so happy to reconnect with you. I, I, I want you, but this is the issue. I have been looking in every thrift store, every record store. I go to... Uh, Famolaro and I can't can you like you have become this traveling warrior of drums and inspiration but where can you talk about your activity in the studio scene did, did you play on records you know it's funny Jack and for, for the most part a couple of the records that I did record were never released I had done a series at, at some studios where I would play demo recordings for artists that were proposing, you know, full albums sure. to record labels. And the, the three or four albums that I recorded never were picked up. And this probably sitting on a shelf someplace. So I started to do uh, jingled work. So in the city, in New York City, jingle work was very, very common back in the 70s. And I'd go in and I would do Chanel Number no. 5. I would do different, you know, uh, companies like... Uh, you know, car companies, you know, for Ford and stuff like that. And we play these jingles, we work all day, get paid phenomenal money. And these jingles I would hear on television or I'd hear them on radio. And it was so great years ago as the jingle market was so, you know, prolific on what it was. It's not like that anymore. 
But at that time, I was recording that, and I realized that you know, recording doing these jingles wasn't as much fun as I was having when I was playing live. I said I loved playing live, so I kind of pulled myself out of the jingle world and started playing live with bands and going out. And then when my when my you know my speaking you know chops got to a certain level where companies felt that Julie, you, you know you'd be really be do, do good doing these clinics and traveling around the world. Next thing I know, I'm opening up for acts like Cotton and Simon Phillips and Louis Belson, and I'm traveling doing these clinics. <laughs> and that opened up a whole other educational world for me that's been going for the past 30 years. What, what, okay, so but, but let's not gloss over. I need to know uh, the bands, even going back to the 60s, These I want to know the bands you were in. This is the live bands that you were playing in. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I had the chance, <clears throat> I was so honored, to play with B.B. King. And B.B. King was just a phenomenal, you know, school to learn all of music, you know, to learn touch, feel, dynamics, you know, the essence of blues. So that I had that chance and that opportunity, which was absolutely How did that come about? By, it was a Huntington Jazz Fest? How did that happen? No, that happened where it's, uh, I was endorsed for the company uh, at Pearl Drums, and, the, um, and at the time they had, been, they had owned, I think they were distributing or owned Gibson. And at the time, B.B. King was playing some Gibson. So they needed some session guys to back up B.B. King. They called me up. They called up a bass player and a whole band. We had about a, about maybe an eight- or nine-piece band. We played behind B.B. King. He loved us playing behind him at that time and then just kept us for several more gigs. And then I was offered the gig to go on the road, but the money at the time just didn't seem good enough for me to leave and travel and do all that. So I stayed in New York doing what I was doing, and the band went out, and I moved on. Then I got a call from Lionel Hampton's band. There was a uh, saxophone player by the name of Barry Titono I worked with, and he took over managing Hampton's band. He calls me up. Hampton wanted a different drummer. I go in. I do the audition. They love my playing. We did like three or four gigs. Then Hampton at some point says, listen, I'd love to take you on the road. Again, the money was ridiculous. It was just not good enough for me to leave New York to start playing. So I, I kind of had to weigh that balance, Jake. And this is really hard to do because I said, boy, do I go on the road and do these gigs and not really make that kind of great money but get that kind of experience? Or do I stay and continue to build my local you know, world that I had where I was making some money, where I was doing some, some, some club dates with some great, great players, making good money, teaching, playing with my own band. So I chose that route. I chose not to go out there and do it. Then I did some dates with Barney Kessel. And Barney Kessel, who was a great, we did just jazz trio, guitar, bass, and drums. And Barney Kessel was really old school jazz. He had worked with Charlie Parker back in his youth days. So I had a chance to learn small group playing with Barney Kessel, the B.B. King thing, learning some more of the blues stuff, the big band with Hampton. I had a real good wide experience of playing from having the chance to be with these guys. And it was really was very humbling and they were wonderful people to be with. It's just that the money wasn't that good for me to commit to it, to take myself out of what the money I was making here in the New York area to go and travel and do what I was doing with them. Um, talking to Dom Fumilaro here on the Jake Feinberg Show live on Power Talk. Um, I just, I'm going to ask you as simple as possible. Please tell me about what David Garibaldi means to you and what his impact and imprint has been in the lexicon of rhythm. Well, I'll tell you a few different things. The fact that, number one, uh, I'll fill you in where he's at, and the fact that I actually spoke to David, and, uh, and I'll fill you into where he is right now. Please. I met I met David in 1976, 
and he was playing a, a, a drum clinic, an educational class, at the Dick Grove Workshop in California. And he was, play, of course, playing with Tower of Power. And what I loved about Garibaldi was kind of like the same thing I loved about Steve Gadd, that these guys were rudimental you know, players. They, they understood rhythm and, and mixed sticking patterns, and they played them in such a comfortable, smooth way that it was an exciting way to hear drums played. Instead of just playing regular eighth notes on the hi-hat, these guys played mixed sticking patterns that really kind of opened up the independence and contemporariness of where drum set was going. So when I heard, heard Garibaldi with the band, then I had the chance to sit in a class with him, he just blew me away with how articulate he was, how well he explained everything, and just how just what a nice guy he was. So we hit it off. We became friends. I've known David for the past literally over 40 years now. And he's been at my house. He's come by. We've worked on patterns together. We've worked on foot technique together. He, he really is such an incredible continuation of being a student of the art form. And I speak to David probably once or twice a month in the Global Travels. We've done tons of clinics together. And he's mentioned me in most of his books because of, of, of suggestions that he wanted when he sent the book to me to, to edit it and look at it. So David has been you know, an inspiration at such a high level to me as a, as a person, as a player, as an educator, just an all-in-out beautiful guy. And what happened to him recently when I had, uh, had, had uh, heard the news I contacted his family, and uh, you know he got hit kind of in the face from this train, and then back to, and then was thrown off from it. So he's got some facial you know damage with his eye socket and, and, and just his, 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 a little bit of his jaw and a couple of broken ribs. So I think David's going to pull out of this thing really fine. The bass player, I think, got a little bit more of a of a of a, of a hit when the train hit them. And where they are at Yoshi's walking across that track, it's a very common place that many people walk across the track at that point to go back and forth in that area. So it's a very common walkable area across the tracks. And David, you know, continues when I spoke to him, he just said, I'm going to be fine. And he'll be back in action. He'll be back in that seat with Tower Power. And he's going to come back stronger than ever. Yeah. You know, I, I love the cats. I mean, I've never met him in person. I, I most of the, 99% of the cats I, I've actually never actually physically met, but uh, he's, you know, I, I, I took him by surprise a few years ago when I wanted to interview him and really, um, you know, he was talking about uh, playing with Harvey Hughes uh, in Oakland, just working out patterns, working on patterns. I, I wanted you, I just had Carmen and Torre, the drummer uh, on uh, before, and he was talking about, I was asking about Garibaldi and he was talking about, he was not playing straight eighth notes, and you, you use this term mixed sticking patterns. Can you talk Absolutely. talk about how that can you know for a listener how that can can expand consciousness? <laughs> because to me that is ex what you I interviewed you know Richard Quintanall, the drummer Richard Quintanall? No. Okay, well he's a, no. more five, he he played uh, played with Don Ellis played with. Uh, some Bay Area bands and was very close to Garibaldi now back in Connecticut. And he was just talking about um, Gregorico from Sly Stone and the idea that right. he was a, that, that Richard was a jazz, you know, he was into jazz and he didn't take yeah. pop or rock music all that seriously. But then when he saw Gregorico play with Sly Stone, he couldn't believe, and I think it had to do with this mixed sticking pattern. And I want you to riff on that. Right. I want you to talk about that as a technique and also how it can really sonically open the music. 
Well, that's a, it's a great question, Jake, and it's a great observation. And, you know, when you speak about opening up consciousness, that's exactly what Garibaldi and Gad did. Mm-hmm. They took, there's a book called Stick Control, and Stick Control is probably the Bible of drumming that every drummer who was anyone goes through that book. It was written in 1935 by George Lawrence Stone, and it's still a number one selling book throughout the world. An amazing book. And in the book, it starts out with the first pattern is right, left, right, left, right, left, and we call that a single-stroke roll. So that right, left, right, left, right, left is repeated, and you practice that. Number two is left, right, left, right, left, right. It's just the same pattern, but it starts with your left hand. Mm-hmm. Number three are double strokes, where you're playing right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, a double-stroke roll. Number four is the same pattern, starting with your left hand, so now you're playing left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. And number five goes into what's called a single paradiddle which is a right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left pattern, which is a combination of the first one and two and three and four. So this, this now gets into what's called the mixed sticking pattern, mm-hmm. this right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. Well, what Garibaldi did, and, and also Gad, is they would then place their bass drum while they played that mixed sticking pattern anywhere in that pattern. And that needed a whole other level of independence to put your right foot on the bass drum anywhere along that mixed sticking patterns while your hands, your right hand and left hand, were mixing up all these different rhythms. So they kind of opened up this world of, of contemporary you know, independence where now your foot could go anywhere you wanted it within any hand that was playing that, that note. And that's what a mixed sticking pattern is. So these guys did this comfortably and easily, when I first heard this and I started doing it, I said, what the heck is this? i got to shed this. i got to go back and, and work on it. And I would work, I would bust my tail going over these patterns. And then in, in, in stick control, the next pattern is a, is a paradiddle, but they kind of shift it around. They kind of rotate it over a little bit, so it changes the sticking pattern again. Well, these guys were doing this like it was nothing. And all these great drummers with these bands, with Sly, with, with the James Brown, they started putting this mixed sticking pattern, and they'd move their bass drum around. And this just took my generation, which was I mean, 10 years younger than these guys, we had to sit back and say, what the heck is this? So we had to go back to the drawing board and learn this stuff. And it was so inspirational, and it was so mind-opening. And it is that door that was opened up by Garibaldi and by Gad and these great drummers that totally shifted drumming out of the 20th century, and now that they brought us clearly into the 21st century. It's you, been an amazing adventure in rhythms. I mean, you are an inspirational speaker on top of a master drummer, but are you? can you definitively say that Garibaldi, Gad, and Enrico, are there any other cats that predated them that were doing something like this uh, that influenced them, this mixed sticking pattern, or, or, or they were the ones that put us into the 21st century? They were the ones that put it into rock and funk. Right. The guys before them, who they took it from, were guys like Philly Joe Jones, Elvin, Tony, um, Papa Joe Jones, uh, Roy Haynes. These guys in the jazz world played mixed sticking patterns, but it was almost like accepted in jazz. And, and, but it wasn't in funk or rock. So uh, Hal Blaine, the great, great, uh, the oh, great, yeah. great uh, studio session, Hal used to say you know, there was a time where, you know, when they were, they were jazz players, now in the 60s, being asked to play straight eighth notes and rock. And he said our hands weren't trained to do that. So when they played a lot of the rock stuff, 
like with the Elvis stuff, it had a certain bounce to it. So even though they were playing rock, it had a bounce to it. He said it had a bounce to it because we were jazz players. We didn't know how to play rock, and it wasn't until Gad and those guys came along that they defined the clarity of the straightness of the groove, then opened up this mixed sticking pattern, then added on a whole level of independence, and guys like Cobham then came along and took it to a whole other level where it became like, wow, it was so exciting and so different, and it really kind of gave that, that whole generation of playing a whole lift in expression where now fusion music came out of jazz because they were fusing elements of rock and funk into that jazz. It was really an amazing time. Oh, man, you are, I mean, I cannot, I'm so psyched to be able to, to talk to you again. I, um, you know, I just, I wanted to, uh, uh, let's see, I got a quote here. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, okay, so the, the, I had a chance to speak to, since we last talked, Rick Murata, uh, who actually, oh, great. yeah, he did not um, actually, as you probably know, didn't even pick up the drumsticks till 19 years old. Um, uh, you know, and he talks, and I want you to just talk about this to younger cats because, uh, I mean, for me, I might ask you a question. It might take three or four minutes, and I really should have, I could say whatever I needed to say in, 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 in 15 seconds. And I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to read this to you. He said, um, I'm thinking you say everything you need to say in a minute or two. Give them a, each a minute and let's move on to the next song and see what, what they have to say. Uh, I didn't like it when a song lasted 15 minutes. He goes, there was a guy I worked with out in L.A. and I did some gigs with him. He was doing some gigs and he was calling me to play live with him. I'd seen him play. I know he was great because we did some sessions together. I said, I'll do it, but let's not do these solos that last 15 or 20 minutes. And we rehearsed a little bit, and I talked with him about it, and he said, yeah, man, that sounds great, and he was listening. And We got on stage, and I swear to God, I was yelling, stop, move on, in the middle of the tunes, and he never paid attention because he immediately went off into the, his, into the you know, 15 minutes. I told him after, this isn't fun for me. This isn't what I want to do. I don't want to go see a guy slamming cymbals, throwing sticks at the kit for 20 minutes on one song. That's what I felt I was doing. We were repeating phrases. We were going back and playing the same thing over and over. Can you talk about how, in your own evolution, how you've learned how to say what you need to say in a very short period of time? Boy, great! Another great question, Jake. I'll tell you. I'll tell you why this is important for the younger generation to understand. In speaking, when someone speaks and they are spending so much time coloring what they want to say because they're not exactly sure how to fine-tune and target exactly what they're saying. The listener sometimes says, my gosh, get to the point. Just, <laughs> right. just, just tell me what you're saying. Get to the freaking point and lay it on me. What's the question? What happens when somebody's mind moves at a much faster pace, someone whose mind moves slower, and not necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but someone whose mind moves slower, who needs to think about each word, kind of starts to just let their mouth kind of speak words not necessarily getting to the point that they want to say. A brilliant speaker and player who does this so well is someone like Gad. Gad, talk about less is more. Sometimes when you ask Gad a question, he'll pause for what seems to be 10 to 15 <laughs> seconds before he answers the question. I know, I know. Because, <laughs> right, because he wants to kind of fine-tune, he wants to get his mind to understand the right words so when he says what he says, it's right to the point. You're darn right. I, I, you're 100%. I love that with, with, with people when they do that. So what happened with what Rick Murata is saying, and Rick is a great example of this, 
It's really about targeting exactly what is needed to get the message across. Now, I see this sometimes on, on some of the talk news shows that happen where they interview certain people and the question that they ask is a long question and then the answer that comes back is a long answer. And both the question and the answer could have happened literally in 30 seconds right. to get the point across. Right. And, and sometimes people just like to hear themselves speak and sometimes with drummers they just like to hear themselves play. So they become very wordy and very verbose, and unfortunately, they lose the message of the heart of what they're saying. Exactly. So a great, yeah. a great artist wants to target and get the heart of what they're saying to the audience so they connect with the audience immediately and pull them into the song. And that's the power of what these guys did, which was unbelievably great. You know, I, I think this is important for you, I mean, because... Uh, what what Rick was also saying was that you know ultimately, you know, I, I love certain people that can improvise forever. But a lot of times, you if you're doing it too long, you wind up repeating phrases. You're not really creating any new vocabulary. Was there a time? I mean, I, I remember talking. I talk to younger my peers now more than ever before, and they talk about you know playing a riff uh, on their guitar, and everybody's went wild, and then when they came back around again, they played the same exact riff and the drummer looked at him and said, what the F are you doing? Stop playing the same damn thing over again. Did you ever, can you talk about how you learned? I mean, you are a public speaker. You are verbose. I don't, I mean, I could sit here and just tee it up for you and you're going to go on a five minute riff and not repeat yourself once and, and go off and make like four or five prescient points. But on the bandstand, did you ever get that treatment where it was like, what are you playing that again? You just played it. You did, why are you playing it again? Absolutely. In the early days, you know, in the experimental days where we're, where we're really discovering ourselves, and this is where maturity comes in, this is where age comes in, like in anything, even in a relationship. How does a relationship work better? When you get a little bit more mature and you've been through some of the, you've been through the ropes with some of the relationships mm -hmm. and some of the playing, you get mm -hmm. to learn it better. Absolutely. So in playing, sometimes you have to play certain things and you, sometimes you have to overplay in the early days so you can find out and go back and listen and say, boy, I, I really could have said that better shorter. And I learned that with people public speaking. If I'm in front of a crowd, I don't want to abuse or waste any of their time by throwing in any extra words. For example, like if you listen to speakers on television, and, and you don't do this, which I'm so amazed at, is the word um that comes in with many of these professional speakers. I hear this with professional speakers on news shows, on TV. These are professional speakers who went to school, and the amount of um and the amount of extra words that they use, it's so mind-boggling that they just <laughs> abuse our time as listeners. Right. So in the music industry, when, you know, for, for any instrument, when you go up there, just to play exactly what is needed. Carlos Santana does that so well. Steve Lukather does that so well as guitar players. They just play the exact note you need, and when it hits you emotionally, you understand that that's all they needed. Eric Clapton does it great. These guys who were just a BB King had done it great. Of course, guys like, like Barney Kessel, when I was with him, he would play sometimes a jazz line and play like just a few notes, and he would lift, the audience would get excited because those few notes was exactly what they needed to hear to connect to the music he was playing, and it lifted the audience up. This is huge! When that happens. Exactly. You know, no, I mean, really, I mean, yeah, I mean, th th this, I, uh, so I'm just, like, the idea, I mean, I this is to me cathartic because you don't see this, I don't see it in Tucson in a live musical setting. I mean, I was, I, I bring up this cat Quintanol again, he was in Don Ellis's band and Ralph Humphreys 
Humphrey was oh, one great. Of, okay was one of the drummers. He said that Don at one point this is like sixty nine seventy again very experimental times. He had three trap sets and percussion on the stage at the same time. I Absolutely. Mean, and, and and this is the point. And here's the point is that uh, it was so inspirational for people, and it was so well done. George Duke was in the band on keyboards. He had three drummers. Yeah. Okay, so, but people would get up at the end and clap and applaud. They cheered. They were so inspired by it, you know? And it's like, I, to me, it's like, where, I mean, I understand that there's cost issues going on, but why was there this propensity, this deep searching for rhythm, for need, for sonic expansion? You had all this Harry Parch, and you had Don Ellis, and you had Frank Zappa, you had Odd Meter. And now it's just well, we're just playing a trap set. I mean, there's this one drummer. This like, where did the double drums and the expansion of rhythm? Why was that so intoxicating when you were coming up? And is it just because of our over reliance on electronics now that we don't have multiple drums kits on the stage anymore? You know, it, 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 that's, that's an interesting point because there were many bands, the Dooley Brothers stuff, that had two drummers. Joe Cocker, that Joe Cocker, two, Mad Dog, Cocker, absolutely. Absolutely. And they had two drummers in there. And part of it was there's something primal about rhythm. There's something primal that can take an audience when drummers are playing and the fundamental rhythm. Gene Cooper did this so well when he played his tom-tom you know, pattern on sing, sing, sing. Mm. He, he brought the animal characteristics out of the people to want to dance and jump and go crazy just from a floor tom, you know, you know pseudo-African sound beat rhythm in this jazz song and drove the people crazy. And that opened up a whole other world of, world of different, you know, you know, patterns and rhythms that drummers can play. And it was because of Gene's song, Sing, 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 and that rhythm that brought the drum set to the front of the group. So bands like Stuff, for example, with Steve Gadden, Chris Murata playing drums. My gosh, the, the, first of all, all those brothers, the Murata brothers, they're all magical. I don't think I realized fantastic. that there was a brother lineage there. Wow. That's oh mind-blowing. It's just, it's, just, it's just like the gift that keeps on giving. It's just these... Absolutely. Anyway, well, go ahead. I don't want to cut a... you off. I, I don't want to keep... you... Yeah, go ahead. If you, can, if you can get them on the show, get the Murata Brothers on the show, you'll be blown away by just the, the, <laughs> the, the legacy of, of what they've recorded, what they've done. And what... Oh, my gosh, those guys are endless. But this double drum thing, what happened with it, it, it created a feel that it, people could not sit still. They couldn't sit still because it... But what takes with two drummers is it takes a tremendous amount of respect and listening ability to hear what not to play so you don't step on the other guy, but you compliment the other guy. And that's what a lot of these bands did. The Doobie Brothers did it so well, as the Grateful Dead and as did Gad and Chris. These guys were able to play, and they sounded like one rhythm with two drummers that just elevated the feeling of the room at that moment and lifted people to inspire them to aspire, and that really is the ultimate of what music can do. <laughs> Very well stated. I, you know, I, I also wanted you to talk about uh, Booker T. Came out with an album called Universal Language in the late '70s. But music, uh, we're 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 in this in, sort of innocuous time. Uh, some people are petrified. Some people are liberated. Some people have confidence. Some people are worried. Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately. Dom, it's, you know, I, I interviewed Ted Nugent for an hour and a half yesterday. And he, mm. he okay, so, so putting aside all the, the political views, whatever you think, uh, you know what he was talking about? Going to Baker's Keyboard Lounge and watching and, and being in awe of Youssef Latif 
and yeah. and Sun yeah. and Sun Ra, and being on the yeah. road playing bass with Bo Diddley. You talked about BB King before. I interviewed Dee Dee Bridgewater this week, and she was crying talking about her relationship with BB. Okay, the point is that okay, this is how important is human human interaction in music in the 21st century. How paramount is it? As everything today, business, so much of what we do. I mean, they have camps in China now to wean kids off technology. Everything's done digitally yeah. now. How important yeah. is the universal language of music? How relevant is it? And if you don't have venues and you don't have music in schools, talk to cats about how to create when you have nothing. Well, great, great question, Jake. You know, there's, it's a challenging time that we live in. And, and uh, let me preface this answer first by saying that last year, I traveled to 21 countries, and on Delta Airlines, I flew over 222,000 miles. <laughs> that's that's ins- it's more than most NBA teams. I think it's all the NBA put together, it's, man. It, that, that's about nine times around the globe that I traveled just last year in 2016. So it was an amazing year of traveling wow. and different countries and different people. I went to China many times. And my first time to China was 1993. And what's amazing about the universal language, the fact that they don't understand what I'm saying out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Although they do more now, but when I first got there in '93, but yet when I played the drums and played to tracks and played music with some of the musicians that were there, they felt it and they were emotionally moved. So although we could not communicate verbally, we communicated with sounds. And I tell people, you know, I, I, I I'm a drummer. I hold I hold wood in my hands and I strike metal and plastic. And people say, my gosh, that's what you do for a living. That's what I do for a living. I hold wood and I hit metal and plastic. And they said, well, how do you get paid? I said, they get paid when I organize the noise that I play. I dig. When I organize it, that means the the organized sounds reach people and someone can now intellectually relate to those sounds organized and feel from it. That is a higher level of of understanding that that only humans can relate to. That when we hear, we intellectualize, and we intellectualize this with our heart, because your heart's got to be involved in the intellectualization with this universal sound. So, music being pulled out of the schools is a very, very difficult topic that I discuss all the time in my travels, especially when I'm in the states, and I'm constantly speaking to politicians and different people that are involved to let them know that, you know, music is going to exercise your brain in ways that math and science. They spoke about STEM, the importance of STEM. Well, I'm telling you something. The importance is steam. Steam is, <laughs> steam is burning. Putting the, yeah. the steam is putting the arts back in STEM and bringing steam to what's happening. And once you talk about steam, steam is what's going to cause all the excitement for movement. So the arts have to be put into the young, young kids' education because this is what's going to give them confidence and love and understanding and humanity and sensitivity and compassion. These are all the words that we have to have this young generation be aware of for them to understand the balance of when you make a decision, any decision in any field, you need the balance of all of your areas of life to give you the best ability to make that choice. And that's where the arts come into play. So this universal language has the power of reaching people who may not understand our culture, they may not understand our language, but when they hear the vibration of those sounds and they move to it, I mean, listen, from drum solos, when I was in China, one of my first tours, I, people were crying 
in the audience. They were crying because it was so emotional. They had never heard a drum set player before. They didn't even know what the heck I was doing, but they were so moved by the feeling of it. They were crying. They were coming up to me and hugging me, and they didn't want, they didn't want me to go. And here it is, 1993, I was the first pretty Westerner to go to China to start doing these clinics and teaching and setting up schools. And the power of that to the point that now, 12 years ago, I met a young drummer by the name of Mr. Lee. And I talked about the idea of setting up a school in China that now 12 years later, this school is called Nine Beats. And check out these numbers, Jake. We now have over 400 drum schools in over 300 cities, 3,800 teachers, over 60,000 students just in mainland China. And and there's more to go. And and that's a billion people there. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's one drum school, and that's the beginning of what's happening. And I did a a TV show when I was there just a a few months ago in China. And after we did the show, they interviewed me. They had a translator right there for me. I asked the producer, I said, boy, that was great, man. You guys did a whole hour on me. This was great. I said, "Uh, how many people do you think are going to watch this? And he turned to me and he said, oh, over a billion. Okay, but but I'm going to stop. I want to challenge you on something here. Okay, your school was the bandstand. And, and, you know, these cats are, when you first got out there, they were inspired just by your your spontaneous creativity and a spontaneous composition on the drums. Are they able to play live? I mean, and, and then, I, you know, I remember talking to the skipper, Henry Franklin, one of my dearest friends, the bass player, who's out there for a six-month gig in China. He said it was weird because they were playing, you know, you know straight ahead, but, you know, the cats are looking down at their iphones you know i mean how yeah that all i'm saying is it's how do you get beyond that dom because i i get that it's going to get it it's going to affect it's going to touch a lot of people but the can can vocabulary in new vocabulary music be created within within schools well a good question and, and the answer is i don't know because, <laughs> because uh, it, it, time's going to have to tell see right. what happened when we were younger we played jazz because jazz was an american music it was culture that Louis Armstrong saw that when all these immigrants came to America and they had a better life and they understood what really freedom was, that they could come here from their challenged countries and the old countries, come from Europe, anywhere around the world, they'd come to America and they had a better life. My grandfather, at the age of 12 years old in 1907, came to America. He was born in 1895. He came to America from Italy, couldn't speak the language, but he knew in Italy where he was in a little island called Stromboli, north of Sicily, they were his family... He saw his parents and his older brothers all just, you know, literally dying in front of him. They had no work. They couldn't eat. So he hopped on a boat, and four weeks later, he was in America by himself with $11 in his pocket, came here. And when he came here, he said what was amazing when he arrived here, he said the music that you would hear, the music, the jazz, the Dixieland jazz, all that music, the ragtime, he said just the music alone inspired him to want to work and push harder. So he said they would listen to music in the evening so it inspired them to wake up early the next morning to push harder in their lives to make more money and to survive well he did he came here eventually made enough money to bring his brothers and his parents back over to the country my parents were then born in america they were here so jazz was such a part of the culture my parents would go to listen to frank sinatra and tommy dorsey and all these great big bands there was such great music in our household we heard this excitement of big band and jazz jazz was there so we grew up with that in our culture. In China, they didn't grow with that. So now they're hearing jazz 100 years later, and they're trying to absorb. There's a feeling there that they know feels good, but they don't understand it. 
So a part of that is the culture. Jazz meant freedom. And right now there's no freedom in China. They don't have that. It's a communist country. It's highly restricted. There's no Facebook. There is no Google. You can't get online. It, it's very, very difficult. All the online stuff is controlled by the government. They use WeChat, which is kind of like what Facebook is, but they created a whole other level of, of – it's called WeChat. You know, I know. I know. Control- my wife – yeah, my wife is Taiwanese, and that's what that, – but, I, you know, again, she – I still – it's so vexing because you go to big metro, you go to big cities in China – and it, you know, there's like this sort of quasi-capitalism going on, but yet there's all this restriction right. of it's it's a it, yeah. I mean, the jazz also is no longer a subculture black music in the states. It's an it's an international right. language. I mean, right. your your traveling is 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 proof of that. Um, what is your? I mean, give talk a little bit about your upcoming year. Um, you know, in general, what what are you looking to do? You've clearly been inspiring people for a long time, but where in Dom Flumlaro's world, where where do you still want to to grow and expand uh, as a, as a as a either a musician or as as a person? Yeah, boy, Jake. You know, I I I, I turned sixty three. I'm sixty three years young, and I say years young for the fact that I I have no pain when I play. I've got no joint problems. I feel great. I feel I'm playing better than ever. I'm meeting musicians globally. I play with some great, great musicians in Italy and France and also in China through the U.S. So I get to meet a lot of these young kids. And now I'm the oldest one in the band when I'm playing. A lot of these kids are in their 20s and early 30s. Whereas when I was you know, a young student, I was the youngest one learning with these older guys. And now the changeover has happened. So I, I wrote a book years ago called The Cycle of Self-Empowerment. And I see the follow-up book to that now. And that book was about 15 years, 15 years out and still selling very well. But now I've been inspired to write a book. My next book to follow that is called Owning Now. To own now, to own the moment and live in the moment. I see a lot of the young generation when I travel around the world, they're not living in the moment. They go to a concert and they're too busy recording it on their phone so they can show people later on that they were at the concert instead of being at the concert taking in great art. You know, it's kind of like going to see the Mona Lisa and not really looking at it, just taking a picture of it when you walk by it so you could tell everybody, boy, I went to see the Mona Lisa. But they didn't stop and look at the Mona Lisa to take in the depth of da Vinci speaking to us from his grave, you know, 500 years ago, you know. So the, the depth of, so owning now is about speaking into the depth of the moment and really understanding what that moment is. Just like as we're talking right now, Jake, and you hear my voice and I hear your voice, we are in the moment, we are in the now. There's nothing important in my life than this conversation right now in speaking to you. When the conversation ends and you go on to your next guest and I go on to my next student and my next adventure, then a different now happens. But to be present in that now, there's a magic and there's an energy in that moment that is so exciting and so unique, but we have to be willing to be present in that moment. So owning now is about we only own now. We don't own tomorrow. Hell, I don't even own later. You know, we don't even know what happens. Look at what happened to Garibaldi. He's going to play with Tower Power. They're walking across the, the tracks like everybody else does, and bang, he gets hit, and, and we're a whole other adventure. So we don't know what our next step is. So we, if we are more present in the moment, we can steal more value from life by being in that moment. So last year was an incredibly fast-moving year, my gosh, for me. And this year already, I'm leaving Tuesday to go to the NAMM show, 
this National Association of Music Merchants. It happened to be my 39th year. I, my first year going there was 1978. I'm going to go there again and hit it again. I'm giving lectures. I'm performing. It's going to be a blazing, you know, roller coaster ride of musical entertainment, meeting all these different friends that I meet every year when I go to the show. When I'm back from that show, I'm home for two days. Then I walk to Hong Kong. There's a drum school opening up in Hong Kong. They want me to be there as the featured guest to go there and do some playing and play with a couple of musicians that are there, do some teaching, some master classes from Hong Kong. I'm there in five days. I fly back to New York. Already the year is starting and cranking up harder than ever. So I want to get this book owning now out. I want to try. I've got four or five more drumming method books that I see as I travel around the world that are methods of ideas that I begin to see a lot of young students ask questions about. So when they start to ask questions about specific things in drumming, I begin to see there's a need for someone to explain that better. So I begin to put a book together and, and write it out. So I still see at 63, there's no retirement. There's no retirement. I, it, it, what I call it, instead of retiring, I want to keep on reinventing myself. Um, well, that's what the Jake Feinberg show has been doing for the last six years. And, and I got to tell you, um, please check your inbox later. I have a, uh, an intriguing proposal for you. Uh, so um, uh, I love you, man. And, and I, look forward to, I look forward to meeting you in person because our work is not done yet. We're both into inspiration. And uh, I, got, I got something to send you later. So check it out and get back to me. Boy, you do it so well, Jake, and I'm so impressed with what you do. Everyone that is, has, has, is anywhere in near the sound of your voice, whether they're listening or whether they get a chance to speak to you, you inspire people, you open up their minds, and you're serving a purpose with a purpose for life by grabbing the art of this musical adventure that we're all on, and you're bringing us all together, Jake, which is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. And I'm going to be in Arizona, actually, with uh, Billy Cobham. He's doing a retreat uh, at the Mesa Arts uh, wait, Center. Wait, yeah, no, the, the Art of the Rhythm section. When are you going to be up there? That's, I think it's July, the week of July. Oh, 16th, we're going to have I a, we're going to, yeah, we'll, let's break out the, we'll get some Sonoran hot dogs and hang out, man. We're going to have a ball. I love it. No. Come on by. But no, I mean, I, I got something that's, I think it's going to, I just, I got something really cool. Um, I just, all I want to say is this, I, Chico Freeman, before you go, what he said, you, you just, I think you, in your, when you were talking about staying in the moment, marinating in the moment, um, Chico was down in Cuba with uh, Dizzy, uh, and they asked they asked them what 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 is jazz? And, and Dizzy, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, "Jazz is being on the bandstand and being able to completely express yourself honestly in the moment. The past is the past. The future will never come." What is happening mm. on stage in that moment, you're able to express yourself with other people around you who are willing to allow you to completely and fully express yourself. That is the truth, and that is jazz. Anyway, Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful. All right. Hey, listen, carry on. We'll be in touch, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much. Stay, stay healthy in this wonderful year and keep doing what you're doing because you're making a difference. Love always, bud. Take care. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.